2: Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat is brought to you by The Joy of Work, the new book by me, Bruce Daisley. The book explores 30 ways that we can improve our work and our work culture. And the first reviews are just starting to come in. So Kerry Cooper says that The Joy of Work is a joy to read. It translates the best of workplace psychology research into practical ways of establishing creative and livable cultures at work. A must read. You can pre-order The Joy of Work on Amazon today. Hi, this is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. I'm Bruce Taisley. It's a podcast about making work better, enjoying ourselves more and enjoying our jobs more. It's uh, I've been top 10 business podcasts in the US and the UK this week, and it's a good reminder for me to slow down and speak more clearly. I basically listen to podcasts in, in all of my leisure time, but I have them as sort of 1.8 speed, you know, it's almost double speed. And for me, then, Sir Michael Barbaro from The Daily he's just like an idol of mine, just this incredible person. But when he's speaking in my ears, he's like this zesty, zippy voice with this incredible mental dexterity. When I listen at real speed, he sounds like his blood group is concrete. Anyway, I must slow down. Two huge weeks in uh, work culture news. Big stories from Netflix, Google, there were other things along the way as well. My own ability to keep up with these things was strongly affected by the fact I went on holiday to China and lost my phone. Imagine the scene. I was I was going to see the Forbidden City, which is strongly recommended. I mean, the whole of China was just like bewitching. But uh, literally the first time I left the hotel, I paid the cab driver and I left my phone on the seat. Boom, no phone for a week. Also, my phone had two-factor authentication on, which seems immensely sensible, especially as I spend my whole time reading about hacking and and, uh, people trying to steal things. But it meant that I couldn't even access my personal email, couldn't wipe my phone. I know what you're thinking. Your whole point is not checking emails at the weekend and on holiday. I know, but I draw the line at texts and WhatsApps. And uh, it felt naughty to be checking Twitter from inside China too, but even that was robbed from me. So connectivity-wise, it was basically a holiday from the 1970s. Anyway, China was incredible, the best, I loved it. Five years, that's what it could be before the, the rest of us are working for Chinese firms. The place is just fascinating, clearly huge. We went to see pandas in Chenzhou, city you've never heard of, 16 million people, you've never heard of it. i tell you what there's a lot of in China, is facial recognition technology. And it did make me wonder how it's going to be used in workplaces. Like all the all technology, there's no doubt that some benign uses of it and a lot of malign uses of it. But if you've ever listened to the episodes of this podcast with Ben Waber, I'm more than a bit obsessed with sort of what workplace badges could do for our working culture, helping us diagnose who's talking to who. But maybe we don't even need badges. Maybe the whole office can be set up with facial recognition. Clearly a debate to be had about it, but just wow. Anyway, back to the week in work culture. Google and Netflix were in the news. And I know I often talk about the stories at tech firms. And that isn't because I work at Twitter and I'm in a tech bubble, but because these are sort of the big firms setting the agenda for these issues. Google's one of the 10 biggest companies in the world. Netflix is where many of us get our own entertainment. And they aren't just tech firms. They're like the the companies that we look to and and we, we seek to understand how the world is evolving through watching these firms. Google were in the news for a return to Me Too after it was revealed that Andy Rubin, the creator of Android, was paid 90 million dollars as a golden goodbye after it was alleged that he'd had an inappropriate uh, case of sexual misconduct with a teammate. Now, I won't go into the, the actual specifics of the allegation but most sides agree that something did happen but i guess the reason why it was of interest because it raises the idea that powerful abusers are being protected by the system we've also seen companies talking a good game when they fire a salary man who does something inappropriate but when it's big buses and they do something wrong we often see whether the principles that firms talk about actually mean something now, Google had come out and said that since Eileen Norton had taken over their people operations two years ago, they hadn't had a single person uh, paid off to leave. And brief disclosure, I do know Eileen and used to work with her. But what's interesting for me is how the, the technology of open, openness is helping here. Um, people at Google are creating these Google Docs. They're like sort of collaborative words documents and dropping stories into them. And it's also happening with pay. So there was a case of a Google Doc with 50 stories of of different incidents. And so consequently, people were able to say, you know, despite the fact that the company is saying these things, there's evidence that it's not the case. People are sharing their salaries in these documents as well. And you might have seen there's a a collective suit taking place because people have been able to, to really sort of collectively organize and demonstrate that the company might not be being honest with them. Anyway, if you remember the episode with Adam Grant three weeks ago, Adam said that the, one of the most important things for people stay to stay at their company is pride in the, in the company. And it'll be interesting what Google do to restore pride because it's clear that a single sentence like Sundar Pichai, their CEO, said, he said, at Google, we set a very, very high bar and we clearly didn't live up to expectations. And that strikes me as it might not be enough. Second big story was Netflix, and in one of the earliest episodes, we taught Netflix culture with Patty McCord, who helped write it. We're all Netflix users, but one of the things that runs through the stories of the experience of working at Netflix is stories about a culture of fear. If you search Glassdoor, there's there's no shortage of mentions of the word fear alongside Netflix. Now, you could contest... That the sort of never say die survival spirit that saw them beat Blockbuster and then transition from DVDs by post into online streaming and then from licensing shows from networks to becoming the biggest network and the biggest creator of content in the world. You could say that that culture has helped them achieve that. But uh, the the article, and I've linked to the Brilliant Wall Street Journal article in the notes of this episode, but the article that originated this story, in in it one exec says he fears coming to work every day. Right, so fear as part of, of a culture, clearly, from what everyone is saying there, is something that we need to understand. Is fear a good thing to experience at work? Look, in aggregate, these Google and these, this Netflix story, these things for me illustrate the danger of firms using claims about culture as marketing devices. When a firm publishes a culture deck and installs sort of neon coloured slides between the floors of their buildings, the audience is very rarely internal. It's guests that use the slides. It's, they're there for photographs. They're there for, for people to, to share. They're not there for the employees. They're effectively saying, come and work here because this place is different. And it's high risk because if you claim to be something you're not, then I think increasingly you're going to be found out. So let's go on to today's guest. As I mentioned to Teresa, I when I was finishing my own book, Teresa Amable is probably the psychologist, the, the business leader who I quoted the most. And it was just a a, a true delight to speak to her. Teresa Amabile started her work really sort of 40 years ago. And when she started her work, she says that there was a genius view of creativity, the idea that people were born creative and the rest of us should just deal with it. Teresa basically took time to understand what the causes of creativity were. Once we know what the causes are, we can take actions to increase them. Her work has studied people in their daily jobs, often catching details of of what are missed by other research. I think, you know, you're going to find the conversation captivating, really, really, truly fascinating. She's a professor at Harvard Business School. She was originally educated and employed as a chemist, but then she uh, went on to study a psych a degree, a PhD in psychology at Stanford University. And her work has seen us f- focus on creativity, on the things that prevent creativity and Uh, What leads to a good day at work? So her book that she wrote with her husband, uh, The Progress Principle, is a fantastic way to get access to her work. But we're going to have a a full discussion here and I'm honoured to talk to her. Here's Teresa. Uh, Teresa, I'm so thrilled to talk to you. As as I mentioned in my email, I've I've just sort of finished writing a book and and you were the person I cited the most. But I guess as as introduction, you started your career as a chemist, and then you studied uh, psychology, and now you've become one of the most respected management thinkers in the world. How do you think of yourself? Do you even categorize yourself in those ways?
1: Oh wow, that's a very interesting question. But I don't think anyone has asked it before. Um, I I guess I think of myself as a scientist, um, and that's a, kind of a continuity from from being a chemist. Actually, I think of myself as someone who's really passionate about uh, getting answers to uh, puzzling questions about people and about the world uh, in a systematic way, which is how I think
2: of science. And it's interesting because that's what really strikes me. The the, um, the, the stuff that I think that you've really brought to the world of understanding management and teams is is – loads of data and evidence and and what i love and what i why i find every part of your work so refreshing is that sometimes the things that we might hear so self-appointed experts or leaders say actually doesn't seem to be borne out in the evidence that you've found so uh, i i wanted to first delve into sort of looking at your your work looking at creativity and you've spent your sort of a lifetime really studying work and creativity but before we before we start, could you could you explain to me what you see as creativity in a job?
1: Yes, first of all, let me say, let me add something to the science comment. I like to do science that makes a positive difference in the world, which is why I ended up studying organizations and wanting to speak to employees and especially to managers and leaders because they have so much influence inside organizations. And I've been interested in creativity throughout my 40-plus years of doing research because I think that it's the root of all human progress. I just define creativity as doing something novel that's valuable, that works in some way. And if you use that definition, and I have to say most researchers uh, who are doing work in this field – use that definition, that means that we are all capable of creativity uh, in some domain or other, sometimes multiple domains, and to some degree or other. Some people obviously are capable of, of high genius levels of creativity, but I would submit, and, and I think there's pretty good evidence, that anyone with normal human capabilities uh, can produce novel interesting outcomes that are valuable in some ways at work.
2: It's an important qualification, isn't it? Because so often we think of creativity as Pixar or we, we think of creativity as some th- some sort of grand artistic endeavor and creativity of- often is in every one of our realms of capability.
1: Absolutely. You know, you know whether it's uh, being a, a marketing communicator or being a leader of an organization or being a scientist, being an artist, uh, being a chef, any realm of human endeavor um, has room for creativity. Even, this is my favorite example, even accounting. uh, People often laugh when they hear the term creative accounting. Uh, They laugh nervously because it has overtones of unethical and certainly illegal behavior. But the fact is, even there, uh, if we think of accounting as a way of looking at financial information that makes it useful to external parties looking at the organization and also makes it useful to the managers and leaders of that organization so they know what's going on, how they're using their resources, what's working and what's not working. There is room for innovation, there is room for creativity in doing things better, figuring out uh, new and clever ways of putting that information together so that it's more useful.
2: So through your diary methodology, you, you captured thousands in, uh, of, of episodes of, of people sort of logging what they'd done that day. And it seems actually that the logging in itself uh, seemed to have some benefit. But could you give us then, based on what you found, what are the ingredients for us to find that creativity in our day-to-day jobs?
1: First of all, there are, of course, ingredients inside the person. Um, each of us needs, needs three things to come together in order for us to produce some creative work. We have to have some degree of expertise um, or knowledge in that particular area where we're trying to be creative. Ideally, we'll also be able to bring in knowledge and experience uh, techniques from from other realms as well. The second thing we need is creative thinking skill, and that means the ability to uh, take new perspectives on problems, uh, go out on a limb uh, in trying something different. Uh, being able to persevere at something, um, even when it's difficult. These are all skills that are relevant to doing something creative in any field. The third ingredient that we need inside ourselves, and this is really what I've contributed through my 40-plus years of research, is intrinsic motivation. And that's, that's, uh, at its most extreme, we call it passion for doing the work. But at lower levels, uh, we can think of it simply as being... Uh, driven by interest, enjoyment, satisfaction, a personal sense of challenge in the work. It doesn't always feel enjoyable. It doesn't always feel like fun. But if we're driven because you know we've just got to know the answer to something, or we've just got to come up with something new here, we can we can feel it. We can sense it. Uh, that is intrinsic motivation. Not that we can't have other motives as well, but. If there isn't at least a spark of intrinsic motivation, it's very difficult for people to do their their most creative work. Those are the things that we need inside of us. I can talk a lot about what has to be there in the external environment. And that 's where I've spent most
2: of my research time yeah, yeah, so just while we're on the subject of motivations, some of your your very first work back to the very very start of, of your career, you did some wonderful experiments with with children and artwork and, and and seeing how children's intrinsic motivation could be destroyed by bad rewards. Do you want to give us a sense of of what you learned from that
1: yes i I do want to take exception to the term bad rewards because um, rewards can be good or bad uh, depending on on the way in which they're presented. And I think that's probably what you meant. So my colleagues and I did did a number of experiments uh, looking at children's creativity. Now, let me describe the very first experiment because it combined reward and expected evaluation. And there was an element of competition too. And all of those, had been hypothesized in psychology to lead people to be extrinsically motivated and to possibly undermine intrinsic motivation. So in this experiment, I did it in my apartment complex when I was in graduate school. There were a bunch of families living in this apartment complex with with a lot of little kids. And I invited the kids in the apartment complex to come to the community center for what I called an art party. Uh, I I printed up invitations. Half of the kids were randomly invited to the Saturday party and half to the Sunday party. So these were on the same weekend. The Saturday party, um, we had a bunch of art activities for the kids to do. We had some little refreshments. When they came in, they got a name tag with their first name, and we had a number, a different number on each kid's name tag. And they really had fun. And we did these activities for maybe half an hour, 45 minutes. And then we got to the final art activity, which was the one that we were really interested in. This is where we were going to measure their creativity. And we were going to put the Saturday kids in a different environment from the Sunday kids simply by what we said to them beforehand. So on Saturday, we said, Hey, kids, the last activity is, making a a collage. Each of you has a big piece of poster board and some glue and a bunch of pieces of origami paper. And you can use this origami paper in any way you want to make a collage. Uh, Just glue the pieces on to the poster board in any way that you want, but try to make a collage that looks really silly. And every kid had an identical set of materials. They were laid out in exactly the same way for every kid. We had these long tables. Then we said, after we're all done with this activity, the last thing we'll do before you go home with your goodie bags, the last thing we'll do is raffle off these three toys up here. And we we took out of a box three pretty attractive toys for kids, at least in that era, and we said, we're going to have a raffle. We've got all a bunch of numbers in this bowl up here. And we're going to blindfold one kid, and they'll come up and pull out numbers. And the first number, that kid gets their choice. The, the numbers are on your name tag. That kid gets their choice of whichever toy they want. Second number that gets pulled out, they get their choice of the remaining two, and so on. So that's what we did. The kids had fun. They made their collages. We gave them about 15, 20 minutes to make the collages. And then we took those away and had the raffle for the toys. The second party on Sunday was absolutely identical, except for the instructions we gave them just before they started the collages. We said, and when you're finished with the collages, my assistants and I, I had, I had two people helping me out with us, two adults. My assistants and I are going to decide, we're going to judge the collages and decide on the three best. And the one that gets first prize, that kid gets to come up and choose whichever one of these three toys they want. And we took the toys out of the box, showed them. And the second best collage, that kid gets, a second, gets their choice of the two remaining toys and so on. That was the only difference. Everything else was the same. But notice what we did. We put the kids in the second party in the situation of competition with their peers, knowing that they were going to be evaluated by these adults, and thinking about the possibility of winning this reward, this toy. So that was the only difference. All the kids made collages. So we took these collages and had later on brought in artists and people who teach kids art, had them come in individually and look at all the collages that had been made from both parties. And they didn't know which ones had been made from which party. We just kind of randomly looked them up and put them on the walls of a conference room. And each one had a number on it. So the judges went around individually, not talking to each other, and made ratings, numerical ratings, of the collages relative to one another and how creative they thought they were. Importantly, the judges agreed with each other. I think we had 12 judges. In that first experiment, they were, they really were in pretty good agreement about which ones were the more creative, which were the less creative. We then took those scores and did statistical analysis. And we found that the collages made the first day, no competitive reward were more creative, significantly more creative than the ones made under competitive reward and evaluation. So that was our first demonstration that Putting people under these extrinsically motivated conditions can, can lead them to be less creative.
2: And and so to some extent, a lot of the work that you've done has followed in in the footsteps of that. Because you mentioned before the the criteria for uh, creativity in the workplace. I think probably to, to sort of go through the, the some of the ingredients in a workplace. Because a lot of us work on deadlines or, or we work under pressure, and you know you hear people say that they're the most they're most creative the version of themselves when they're on deadline. And what did your data say on that? If if we're thinking about driving creativity at work, how how did that impact?
1: We have discovered many aspects of the work environment that can impact creativity. But let me start by talking about time pressure because actually that's one of the most complicated and interesting. You mentioned the diary study earlier. Let me just say a little bit about that because that will give a context for, for how we did this analysis. We recruited... 238 professionals working in seven different companies in three different industries to send us a diary at the end of every day, an electronic diary um, through email at the end of each day, answering just a few questions about their day. So we had a, a number of questions about their motivational state that day, their emotional state that day, and how they perceived the work environment that day including how much time pressure they felt in their work. We then asked them to write a little story about their day. And here's what we asked them. Briefly describe one event from your day that stands out in your mind. It can be anything at all as long as it's relevant to your work or the project that you're working on. These people were in 26 different creative project teams in their companies. So we recruited teams and a team only got to participate if, if pretty much everyone on the team wanted to do these diaries. But they did the diaries individually every day. So we followed these people from the first day of their project to the last day of the project. That was an average of about five months. Some people, well, their project was nine months, and we sent them this diary form every day, Monday through Friday, for as long as their project lasted. When we analyzed the data, we discovered that time pressure had a very complex effect on people's creativity. We measured creativity a number of different ways, including having close colleagues and supervisors of these people rate them monthly on their creative contributions. But we also analyzed the diary story. If someone mentioned on a given day that they came up with a new idea, that they solve a complicated problem, we counted that as evidence of creative thinking that day. Now, we didn't, we didn't tell them we were looking at creativity. It's only if they, if they chose that as their event of the day, we were able to count it as creative thinking. We found that the vast majority of high time pressure days had low levels of creativity. Very unlikely to find a new problem, solution, or a new idea on a day of high time pressure, on the little time pressure scale that we gave people. However, what we did find was that people felt productive on those days. They felt like they were getting a lot done. And under many time pressure situations, we do feel like we're getting a lot done. Things are flying at us and we're taking care of one... We're putting out one fire after another, taking care of one thing that comes up after another... But we spend the whole day on a treadmill. And that's what we call this situation, being on a treadmill. You're dealing with a bunch of different things. You're not doing the main thing you plan to do that day. You're not working on your most important work. You are getting a lot done. But you're not making any progress on your most important work. We found that people were most likely to come up with a new idea, solve a problem creatively on days of low to moderate time pressure. Not absolutely no time pressure, that wasn't very good either, but low to moderate time pressure. In those days, we, we, we said people were on an expedition. They explored, they tried out different things, and that's when they were able to, to really come up with something new. We did find a few high time pressure days when people were very creative. And we call those days being on a mission. Because instead of being fragmented, like those those other high time pressure days, people were able to focus on their most important work. And they were under a lot of time pressure because there was a really urgent need for that most important work. They were focused. They were concentrated. Their managers cleared everything away so that they could just focus on that one thing. And they were much more likely to come up with a really new solution that worked. We've got some great examples of that in in our book, the Progress Principle. But there is an example that many people know about, if they're at all familiar with the American space program. There was a uh, the Challenger, um, not the Challenger, the Apollo 13 space mission. When these when these uh, these astronauts were up in space and their cabin air filtration system blew, it it blew up. They were about to die from too much carbon dioxide in what they were breathing, they were running out of oxygen. Well, that was a true deadline because those guys were going to be dead. People down in Mission Control were able to focus on this problem, and they actually did come up with a a life-saving solution for these guys up in space to try with just the materials that they had handy in that space capsule, and their lives were saved. So that's an example of being on a mission. You're not focusing on anything else. You're just concentrating on this problem and you believe in it. You know why it's important.
2: So I guess I guess your your point there is that the being on a mission is the exception rather than the the, the general rule. It's it's rare to be our most creative when we're under that pressure.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Because those on a mission conditions aren't very typical in most organizations. And you know what? If they were, I think people would burn out. People can do this in brief spurts now and then. And we, we, we identify what the very special management conditions are that have to be in place for that to happen. So by and large, the best kind of time pressure is, I would say, moderate time pressure. Enough so that people know, yes, what they're working on is important. There is a real need for it, but enough time that they can explore for some some better solutions.
2: There's a, there's a couple of things I want to draw on from what you've said there. The, the first is that while we, we talked about uh, time pressure as one sort of stress, I just wonder, you know, other stresses, do, do these things have an enduring impact if we've had a very stressful day and we're trying to be creative? D- does that have, have a lingering effect or can we bounce back from a stressful day into our most creative selves?
1: We have some evidence that the emotional state a person is in on a given day does have a carryover effect uh, to the next day. But we looked at it in terms of emotional state, mood. I can't say in general if if this goes for just feeling overall stressed, although I would bet that it does carry over. So we found that if people are in a, a better mood, a more pleasant emotional state, more positive emotional state on a given day. Not only are they more likely to come up with a creative idea that day, but they're actually more able to come up with a creative idea the next day, regardless of their mood the next day. So that's clear evidence of a carryover effect. Being in a particular um, mental emotional state leads us to have certain kinds of cognitive processes go on. Um, If it's a positive state, we're much more likely to think broadly, to associate things cognitively that we wouldn't normally associate. And that can result in a a new idea now, or it can kind of cook overnight. And and those cognitive elements can, can come together the next day and lead us to be more creative then. By the same token, if we're in a worse mental, emotional state on a given day, that can decrease the likelihood we'll be creative that day and the next day as well.
2: Now, now you, I wanted to, to look at the role of management because we, you've, you've mentioned that a couple of times as we go through here and you were fortunate enough to, to find that your diaries were placed at this kitchen product company, Carpenter. Uh, really, as a sort of carpenter went through its, its final throes and so you were able to capture environments that were creative in, in Carpenter and then environments that were failing. And the one thing that I felt when I was reading through it was that management was the defining difference. So do you, do you want to give us a sense of what you learned about the role of management in driving two things, I guess, creativity and also in pro- productivity?
1: Yes. Uh, managers play a, a crucial role because they establish the work environment, they establish the culture of the organisation, and that trickles down to all levels. So we found that people are, are most creative and most productive when they feel that they are doing meaningful work and they have clear goals in what they're trying to accomplish. And it was stunning how at Carpenter the goals kept changing. Top managers um, for, for the R&D group, for example, would say, you know, one week, okay, we approve this project, uh, go ahead, develop this new product. And then a couple of weeks later they they tell the team, no, no, uh, Forget about that. We've changed our priorities. Develop this product now. And then they tell them to stop that after another while and go back to that other project. So people had no sense of clear goals. They were never consulted. On These are professionals. These are experienced uh, design, development, marketing professionals who were being pulled around like marionettes with no no clear sense of goals and no autonomy. In what they were doing, and autonomy is a second key ingredient. Managers need to give people as much freedom as possible in not necessarily deciding exactly what is going to be done, what is that goal, but in deciding how to get there and deciding um, how to carry out that mission that they have. And,
2: and I saw you describe, auto, I saw you describe autonomy as you were going through this as the the sense of knowing that your decisions will stick, that your that your decisions will your decisions will hold. Yes.
1: Well, autonomy is really feeling that you have ownership of your, of your own work and that when you decide to approach something a certain way, you will, in fact, be able to do that. So, yes, that decision will be carried out. And that's a decision that you've made. You also need to be able to count on the decisions of upper management to set those overall ultimate goals and that they're not going to change because when they change, then your entire plan falls apart and you have to start over. So in addition to uh, clear goals in meaningful work, that is people have to know what they're doing and why it matters, who is this going to benefit, they also have to have autonomy and they have to have help when the work is difficult. Uh, they have to have access to information that they need, resources, funding that they need, uh, whether it's inside the organization or outside the organization. And at Carpenter, we found that managers were not in any way paying attention to, to the pleas of these development teams that they needed a new technical resource. They, they needed a little bit of additional technical help on the team, for example. Or they needed some financial information on a customer that another group uh, wasn't giving them. Very poor communication, very poor collaboration. And it was because at the top, the top managers were not in these different, in these different sectors and these different departments were not agreeing with each other on what information would be shared and how and when. And it was clearly impeding the work of everybody down the line. People have to have access to, uh, to the help they need, to the expertise they need, and to those resources. People also need sufficient time to do the work. And we just talked about that. Not too much time, but sufficient time if they're going to be creative and maximally productive. People have to be in an environment where they are learning from problems and mistakes and setbacks. And what we saw happening at Carpenter over and over again was that if a mistake was made, even if it was made when people were trying to come up with a new idea, a new solution, they were trying to innovate a product, they would be soundly criticized for it. They would be publicly ridiculed for it. So everyone became extremely risk averse. And innovation began to completely fizzle out. In the best company, I, I just wanted to give a contrast. In the best company that we studied, ever, all of this was just the opposite. If, if a mistake was made, people knew that the first thing they needed to do was just bring it up, talk about it. They would never get dismissed, they would never get ridiculed. There would simply be a discussion of why didn't this work, what happened, how did it happen. And what did we learn? For,
2: for going forward. I, I saw th- there was a really interesting thing that I, I think um, you, you observed that it, it's often sort of very small it's it's someone's direct manager that often has a big impact on whether they feel capable of cre- being creative so even though Carpenter failed um, it, it's actually sort of close to the where the work's being done that the, the harm is most often taking place and I saw you say the expression you said um, most effective managers lead by serving their team's needs as human beings that effectively or you use another phrase that managers should check in but not check up you know that managers should demonstrate that they're interested in the work that people are doing but not micromanage absolutely they
1: managers should really be in touch and i'm talking about um lower level managers who are really working on a on a consistent basis with with a group of people and sometimes actually working as a member of the team Uh, they need to know what's going on, how how the work is going, what people need, what's standing in the way of progress. And we found, by the way, that of all the things that can lead to people having a positive day where they're having that positive mental and emotional state and being intrinsically motivated, of all the things that can happen, the single most important is simply making progress in meaningful work. So it's that local leader who can help people find meaning in the work that they do day-to-day, connect it to some some higher-level goals uh, to to how customers are going to benefit or maybe even how society is going to benefit, how the company is going to benefit from what they're doing. And it's that immediate day-to-day manager who can give people the autonomy that they need and put them in an environment where they know they're going to get support even if they try something new that doesn't work out.
2: And so this is the progress principle that you, you titled the book after. And, you know, the idea that if you, you feel like you've had a good day at work, if you've made progress in something. But the, the thing that really fascinates me in the time that you've been doing your incredible work is that it appears that the barriers that we put in front of people making progress are more significant than ever. So I read something in the Harvard Business Review. The average manager has 23 hours of meetings a week. We have emails that have sort of grown exponentially in the time you've you've been studying we seem to be putting all these big barriers in front of people making progress is, th- is this why job satisfaction is so low now
1: I think it's one of the big reasons Bruce that job satisfaction is so low people can spend an entire day working really hard and a long day 10 hours 12 hours sometimes and feel that they have done nothing meaningful because they've been sitting in meetings where they weren't clear what the purpose of the meeting was and things rambled on and on. It was poorly organized. It was poorly coordinated or they sit down to do their real work, which is trying to maybe write something that they need to write or solve a technical problem that they need to solve. And they, they, they check their inbox and there are 200 messages that have come in since they checked the day before. Uh, it's impossible to feel that you're able to get anywhere and you constantly feel that you're on that treadmill. We saw this in so many of the organizations that we studied and the day-to-day experience of so many of these people who sent us their diaries. And I think that that may, in fact, be the main culprit uh, behind low levels of job satisfaction now. People have the sense of working harder and harder, but they don't know where it's getting them.
2: And so is the answer to protect blocks of time? What's your view? What do you perceive as the solution?
1: Yeah, I think that it's really important for for individuals themselves, uh, individual workers, if they have the autonomy uh, to structure their day, um, if they have any flexibility there at all, to try to protect at least a half hour or an hour a day when they can ignore everything else, ignore the phone, ignore what's coming into the computer and just focus on the one thing that they really do want to get done and need to get done on their most important work that day, they can give a tremendous sense of satisfaction, tremendous sense of progress, even if it's what we call a small win. Even if you feel you've made just a small step forward, that can give you great inner work life, that great um, cognitive and emotional state from a day. Uh, And by the same token, even small losses feeling that you've had a setback in your work, um, even if it might not look like that big a deal, can be devastating to people on the day that it happens. And unfortunately, we found that these negative events have an effect on people's psychological state, their inner work life, three to four times stronger than positive events. So managers really need to watch out for these negatives, uh, these things that we call the inhibitors to progress, And the toxins to to people's emotional state, they need to watch out for those and try to rid the work environment of them as much as possible.
2: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from rust
1: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side?
2: So it's, so it's sort of managers do no harm in the, in the first instance.
1: Yeah. First,
2: do no harm,
1: yes. And unfortunately, often it's the manager herself or himself who is the source of uh, the negative event.
2: I saw something that in in uh, your work that I thought was really interesting because it, especially because it 's something that at times is pushed aside, and it was the importance of human connection and so you mentioned that um, human connection you, you describe it as a nourishing factor, an important catalyst for us enjoying our jobs and and doing our best work, and you also mentioned that sometimes how happy people feel in their job or how satisfied they feel. Sometimes uh, how happy their colleagues feel saps into that. And that's an interesting thing because especially uh, I I know organisations like Netflix aren't alone, but they talk about how... Um, you know, that that a team affiliation isn't relevant for them or affinity between the team isn't relevant for them. And I thought it was really interesting to see your actual evidence saying that team affiliation and and that human connection was so important.
1: It's very important for people to feel connected to those that they work with. And uh, that's why I worry quite a bit about work that happens only virtually where people uh, never, never meet. And And often we'll never even see each other on a video conference. Uh, it's It's really difficult to uh, to work in that kind of isolated state for long periods of time. I mean weeks and months and years. We found that affiliate a sense of affiliation and camaraderie engenders trust, which which facilitates greater communication and information sharing. it 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 facilitates coordination with, within a group for people to, to feel that they know those they're working with and they, they, they trust them and they respect them. It's, uh, it's, it's no good if people feel that they, that they don't know who they're dealing with or they can't trust them. Now, sometimes the better people get to know each other, the worse they trust each other. But we found in our research that it usually goes the other way, that people have the opportunity to get to know each other as human beings. Um, it is ultimately positive, not only for the work getting done effectively and efficiently, but also for their for their own well-being and how they feel every day.
2: Yeah. And, and I, do, I do wonder if that's one of the the silent casualties of this busyness that everyone's got now. If, if everyone's got all these meetings, everyone's got all these emails. I wonder if this really soft sense of affiliation might be one of the things that's being silently sacrificed.
1: I think it is being sacrificed in many workplaces, simply because people have no time to, um, to chat over lunch, for example. I, I saw something not long ago that said more and more people are, are eating their lunch, their midday meal, while they're working at their desk alone. And in years past, people would tend to congregate um, in a cafeteria or just a, a common space and, and enjoy their lunch together.
2: Yeah, eating Aldesco, I believe it's called. Um, Aldesco, <laughs> <El> <laughs> yes. If if you were going to give if you give bosses one tip to help motivate and and inspire creativity, what would that one tip be?
1: Help your people understand the importance of what they're doing, and ask them to collaborate with you in setting goals for how that work is going to get done. Wonderful.
2: Thank you. Sir. I am so grateful for your generosity of time. Thank you so much. You're very welcome, Bruce. What a pleasure it was to talk to Teresa Amarble. Uh, thank you for listening today. All of the episodes are on the website and that's eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. The best thing you can do is, is subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a review while you're there. Uh, subscribing helps you get the episodes when they, they first come out. And we've got some fabulous stuff coming up in the next few weeks. The likes of Seth Godin, we've got Adam Kay, we've got some really fun stuff coming up. So I'm thrilled you could listen. See you next week.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well,